what are you expecting? What are you expecting in these days? We're all waiting for the next phase, the next opening, the next opportunity. What, what is your expectation? I ask you to keep that in mind as we study this morning, as we consider the things before us. One of the questions that some are still asking, and it's a good question to ask, is where is God in these days? Still pinging off the old question from Joseph's brothers, what has God done to us? Some are asking, where is God? Where is he? Let me just answer that from the first letter of Peter, chapter one, verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is our expectation. That is what we are looking forward to. Not all of the little things out in front of us today, tomorrow, Lord willing, the next day. Our great expectation, our great expectation is obtaining as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, being with Jesus. But Peter doesn't stop there and listen to what he says very closely. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets prophesied by the Spirit of Christ within them about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What Peter's saying is remarkable. We've looked at this verse before, but let it sink in. He's saying that all the ancient Hebrew prophecies of Messiah came from Messiah. Everything spoken about what would happen to Christ and in Christ and through Christ came from Christ. He's the one who told the prophets to say what to say. He's the one who gave the prophets the words. Over 1,800 prophecies are in the Bible. That's 26.5%, according to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. It's all from and it's all focused on Jesus. We recently went through Revelation. We talked about this over and over, 66 books, one revelation of Jesus Christ because Jesus was telling the prophets to tell about Jesus. Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit or the breath or the inspiration of prophecy. So not only does, not all, does all prophecy point to him, but all prophecy is spoke by him. 
the inspiration, the breath, the spirit of Jesus. He spoke the prophetic word to the prophets. Okay, yeah, we get this, Rick. You're going over and over and over this. I know, I want you to understand and make sure that you know that Jesus told the prophets to talk about Jesus because in this, we realize the intentionality of God. We see how purposeful he is and has been in the course of history, steering our days, not, not commandeering our days, not taking it from us and forcing us, but steering the course of history from the former days to the end of days. He fulfills every covenant, every promise, every plan he ever made. So when people say, where is God in these days? Ephesians chapter one, verse nine tells us, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. In other words, looking out ahead to the completion of all things, the fulfillment of everything, the summing up, Paul says, of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. So yes, even this season is part of the summing up of all things in Christ of the fulfillment of the entire work of God. So Jesus spoke to and through the prophets, one of the earliest of whom was an old, dying, sojourning shepherd. Jacob was an end times prophet. Jacob was an end times prophet. Look at verse one of Genesis 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. The days to come? In the days to come. Well, I'll tell you what it means in just a minute. 20 years ago, a guy by the name of Gershom Gorenberg published a book. I've mentioned it previously. It's, it's a book called End of Days. End of Days. It was remarkably timely because it came out just before the terror attacks of 9-11. And in the book, uh, Gershom, uh, Gershom talked about, as associate editor of the Jerusalem Report, talked about terrorism and Middle East violence and world destruction, and the whole focus was really narrowed down to the Temple Mount. As an editor of the Jerusalem Report, he was very familiar with all the terror attacks, with the intifadas, with everything that had taken place in Israel, but in his book, this Jewish man, and I'm assuming a secular Jew, laid much of the blame for all of this Middle Eastern violence at the feet of religious fanaticism in Islam, Zionism in Judaism, and end times fundamentalism in Christianity. In other words, he blamed the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians for all the violence. He says it's their fault. The issue is religion. If we just got rid of religion, imagine there's no heaven, as John Lennon sang. Imagine there's just no religion. And so the blame, and oftentimes this happens when people see an upswing of violence and a surge of violence, they blame religion, they lay it at the feet of the religiously minded, especially those who are fundamentalist, radical in their thinking. Toward the end of his book, 
Gorenberg quotes from a friend, a Rabbi Shmuel Reiner, who said, there's a kind of thing you dream of, but the moment the dream comes true, it's not it. It's not what you dreamed of. The kind of thing you dream of, but when it comes true, it's really not what you thought it would be. It's not what you dreamed. And Gorenberg says, that's a summary of what millennialists forget. That is those looking for the new millennium. He said, there are things worth wanting that you cannot possibly acquire. You religious types, you fundamentalists, you fanatics, those of you with a strong faith, there are things worth wanting you cannot possibly acquire. Like what, Gorenberg? Like a kingdom? You see, the thing that Gorenberg misunderstands about biblical end times prophecy is this. While we do not and cannot force these promises, they will come to pass. They must happen. There is no stopping them. I think I've said this recently. God's prophetic word is a juggernaut rolling forward through time, and it is unstoppable. What God has planned, man cannot pause, cannot get in the way of, cannot stop. So when I read prophecy of scripture, it's not just some ear-tickling interest. This is what will happen. This is what God says is coming. Why? Because he's seen it. Because he knows it. And Numbers 23, 19, referring to God's nature, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So understand, when we talk about faith in God's last day's declarations, in the prophetic word of the Bible, it is not a call to manipulating our circumstances, it is a call to preparation. That is being prepared in our circumstances. It's not about defiance. The church will rise up and bring about the end times prophecies. No, it's about purification. Not about violence. It's about peace. 1 John 3, verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him is defiant against the ruling powers. Oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the goal of this season is Christ-likeness, is purification, is being more like Jesus than we were six weeks ago or two months ago. Purification, a biblical Christian, end times prophetic perspective is about becoming more and more like Jesus as we see his day approaching. That's the goal. That's what we're about. Now, the Jewish end times prophetic perspective is about assurance of all the covenant promises coming to pass and of Israel's survival of a peop- as a people to the, to the very end. So back to verse one, 
Jacob, that end times prophet, says, assemble yourselves to his sons that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. It's a two-word phrase, aharit yamim. Aharit yamim, which literally translated is end of days, latter days. And Jacob knew what he was saying. I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days, in the latter times. We might say in the last days. This two-word phrase, aharit yamim, end of days, appears 14 times in the Hebrew scriptures. That is twice the number seven. Emphasizing the fulfillment completely of God's prophetic word in the end of days. So here's the list. Let me just run you through all 14 of them. Numbers chapter 24, verse 14. <laughs> Balaam tells Balak, the king of Moab, I will advise you what this people, Israel, will do to your people, Moab, in the days to come, in the Aharit Yamim, end of days. Deuteronomy 4.30, Moses says, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, aharit yamim, end of days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Moses says in Deuteronomy 31.29, evil will befall you in the end of days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Isaiah chapter 2 Verse two, the prophet says, now it will come about in the last days, the end of days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. I like that one. Jeremiah 23, verse 20. Oh, Jeremiah used this phrase four times. He likes the phrase. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the end of days, you will clearly understand it. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and accomplished. Did I already read that one? Oh, no, I did because he repeats almost the same thing. Jeremiah 23, 20 and Jeremiah 30, verse 24, nearly the same thing that he will perform and accomplish the intent of his heart in the end of days, you will understand this. Many things people in history have not understood that we're understanding better now. Why? Because we're in the end of days. Jeremiah 48, verse 47, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the end of days. Jeremiah 49, verse 39, it will come about in the end of days that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. And then the prophet Ezekiel gets in on the action. Chapter 38, verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the end of days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. That's part of the Gog-Magog prophecy. Some of you are familiar with that. Hosea chapter three, verse five, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the end of days. Micah chapter four, verse one, which is a repeat of Isaiah two, verse two, because the two were contemporaries. 
And the Spirit of Christ saw fit to speak this twice because it is so significant, it will come about in the end of days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. That's 13 of the 14 and the 14th, the first one is right here in verse one of chapter 49. Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you, that is the sons of Israel, in the end of days. And Jacob's end of days prophecy precedes all the others, 14 of them, but Jacob's is the first, the first one. This is what will befall you, he says, in the end of days. Now, this is interesting to me. The old rabbis had a a perspective on this that they taught, and actually it shows up in multiple rabbinic writings. They believed that when Jacob first gathered his sons to tell them when Messiah would come, or or (laughs) he gathered them to tell them when Messiah would come. He said, boys, get together. And his intention was to say, I know when the Lord's coming. I'm gonna tell you when that's gonna happen. That's the, what, what they teach. The reason they think that is because he begins, I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. So what they're saying is, and what these rabbinic writings teach, is that Jacob suddenly had awareness that Jesus was coming knew when Jesus was gonna come, was able, ready to articulate that. So he said, assemble, I've gotta tell you about this. But as soon as he realized it, again, the rabbis teach, the Shekinah glory of God appeared, erased it from his ministry, uh, his memory, and vanished before his sons arrived. So he has them assembled to tell them when Jesus is coming, and then he forgets right as they come in the room. Now, the idea isn't biblical. And actually, it kind of makes prophecy sound more like clairvoyance or ESP, but it reveals something to us, and that is a long-standing Jewish messianic expectation. You can trace back 3,700 years to Jacob, and you have a man who has end-of-days expectation, looking already to the end of days. Fascinating to me. And while Genesis 49 does not give the precise date of Messiah's coming, I'll tell you what it does. It opens opens what I call the messianic window. I'll get there in just a minute. Jacob, at this point, has already given the patriarchal blessing to Ephraim and then Manasseh in Genesis 48. And so he departs this standard operating procedure and he gathers the rest of his sons and he goes son by son in an unparalleled patriarchal prophecy. This is not the blessings of Jacob. These are Israel's prophecies over his son. Remember where the word of prophecy comes from? The spirit of Christ speaking to the prophet about the spirit of Christ. And I want you to see that clearly this morning. This is one of, Genesis 49 is one of the longest running biblical prophecies on record. That is in how we see it playing out over centuries. We're gonna take Genesis 49 son by son on Wednesday night, but this morning we're just gonna focus in on the lineage of one son and that is the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, down in verse eight. Recognizing, as I said, this is an end times prophecy, an end of days prophetic word. 
we come to Judah, the fourth son. Now, remember Judah's history. He started out greedy, faithless, sexual sinner. I can just imagine him standing here, especially after hearing the dark counsel of Jacob for Reuben and Shimon and Levi. The first few verses, verses three through seven, it's not pretty. What he says to Reuben, not good. What he speaks of Shimon and Levi, not positive. And I, I see Judah there shuffling his feet thinking, oh man, oh man, this is gonna be bad. I know what I've done. I know the life that I've lived. I know the mess that I've made. Remember, he actually slept with his daughter-in-law to produce two more sons. He sold out his brother Joseph. His life was not a good picture. So he's standing there, he's waiting to hear, and then Jacob says in verse eight, Judah, yes, dad, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Hey, that's pretty good. All right, we've turned a corner. And indeed, Judah became the ruling tribe, ultimately fulfilled in the kingly line of David, who would take the throne 640 years later. So this already was a short-term prophecy, short-term, 640 years. But Jacob spoke it, and it began to be fulfilled in the kingly royal line of David, the line of Judah, David, of course, being of that line and the first king of that line. Saul was not of that line. You might say, well, what about Saul? Wasn't he the first king of Israel? Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was a mess. Saul was the people's choice. God gave them what they wanted, and then God brought them through David, his choice for a king, the ruling class of Judah. In fact, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 78, verse 68, it says he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance, so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. David, the beginning of the fulfillment of the ruling line of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah's gonna lead forth. Judah will lead out. 2 Samuel 22, verse 41, repeated in Psalm 18, verse 40. David saying, you have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, as in run away, as in flee. And I destroyed those who hated you. Yes, Judah's hand was on the neck of their enemies. But remember, we talked about this recently, that Judah also means praise. It's a, it's a word play, actually. The name Judah is connected to the Hebrew word yodu. And yodu is praise. If you were to say, praise the Lord, you would use that word yodu. And so we talked about this. Judah becomes now the first to lead forth just as praise goes first. Just as worship leads out faith. Now pause in the prophecy and the history just for a moment. I wanna repeat a question that I've been asking, and that is, does praise 
rule your heart? Does worship go first in your life? Listen, weak worship, weak faith. If you can't worship God, you're gonna have trouble believing him. If you don't praise the Lord, your faith will be wobbly. I'm emphatic on this, and it's not to judge those who've got a hole in the only bucket they have to carry a tune. I know there are those who say, well, I can't sing. When I sing, it sounds more like a frog croaking. Okay, I'll give you that. But the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And praise is not limited to how well you can sing. Praise is an attitude of the heart. Worship is always a heart issue. Can you worship the Lord? Do you praise the Lord? I've spoken before about a young man who was in my youth group when I was a kid who had a horrible voice, terrible embarrassing. We would sit around in a group of eight to 10 kids and he would just start to bellow and we'd all go, oh my goodness, we've got to die an elephant here. And this was at a time I didn't comprehend. I look back and I see in him a young man who loved the Lord so much, he didn't care what he sounded like. He didn't even care if we cared what he sounded like. The point is worship goes First, if I can't even make a joyful noise to the Lord, my heart, not my voice, my heart is out of tune. And my faith will not grow. Ever noticed on a Sunday or a Wednesday or perhaps a a praise gathering of some other kind that when your heart is dark, it's hard to worship? You've just had an argument at home. You're frustrated at work. You're feeling depressed. You're worn out and you walk into church and the first song starts up and the last thing you wanna do is sing and it's hard to sing. But maybe you've thought, "Ah, I gotta sing. And so you start softly at first. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And the song begins to take hold and the heart that was hard starts to soften up. Next thing you know, Your eyes are brightening. The argument wasn't so bad. It can be fixed. There's reconciliation. The day is not so dark. Suddenly, you realize that worship enlightens the heart, increases your faith, it assures your hope, it deepens your love of God. Don't ever underestimate the value of worship. Praise goes first. Praise leads Fourth, 1 Peter 1, 7 tells us the proof of your faith, listen to this, the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this prophecy of Judah, praise, going first, your brothers shall honor you, shall praise you, Judah, Listen, this prophecy, partially fulfilled in David, is fulfilled completely, it's completely realized in Jesus, especially as he returns in his glory. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David by the prophecy of Jacob. Spoke by Christ, right? 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. And that zeal we see in the spoken prophecy of Christ to the prophet Jacob who speaks of the, the praise of Judah. Your government, your rule, your throne. Well, it all begins this praise of Judah, as it were, you could say, with a cub. Verse nine, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Judah is a lion's whelp. So the lion became the symbol of the tribe of Judah. But this Judah prophecy is speaking again of the end of days, not the immediacy of days. As a matter of fact, while Judah among his brothers would be a leader, he was not the ruler. That didn't happen until David. And then truly the fulfillment of this doesn't happen until Christ comes in his second coming. But note this, he begins by saying, Judah is a lion's whelp, a lion's whelp. We don't use the word whelp very much. It's not talking about like a yelp or, or, a, or a little growl. A whelp is a cub. In fact, the word in the Hebrew for whelp is ger. Ger means cub. Judah is a lion's cub. Now at this point, as, as Jacob is prophesying over Judah, the tribe of Judah was indeed a cub, small. It would grow in size and strength and vigor as a tribe, but prophetically, this speaks directly of the King Messiah who also would first come as a cub. Messiah of the line of Judah would appear first, the Bible tells us, as a child, a cub. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Luke chapter two, verse seven, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Listen, in Bethlehem that night at the birth of Jesus, who could have known there was a lion in the shepherd's fields? <laughs> There's a lion among the sheep because he was just a cub, born a baby, born as it were a whelp. Jesus emptied himself. Philippians chapter two, verse seven tells us. He grew up in humanity before becoming the mighty king Messiah, even in his resurrection. Judah's a lion's whelp. Jesus came as a baby. The second thing he says, and this is a, a four-phrase lyrical poem almost here in verse nine. Judah's a lion's whelp, and secondly, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. The picture is of a lion who has come down from the mount, seized his prey, taken hold of it, and dragged it on up into the mountain holds. Do you see a parallel? See, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse eight, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Jesus, 
the lion of Judah descended to capture a prey and to bring that prey then up into the mountain holds of heaven. That prey, the lost, the sinful, the hurting, the broken of this world. He came down, he took hold, he went up. Fourth phrase, or third phrase, sorry. He couches, he lies down as a lion and, note this, as a lioness. Now that's a single phrase there. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lioness. And pause there for a moment because that's interesting. It's, it, your Bible might say, you might read, he couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion. No, it's as a lioness, it's the feminine form. Why? Well, for one thing, the lioness was the hunter. I kind of like that, you know? The wife does the hunting and the husband just hangs around the cave. That works for me. The lioness but the picture here that is drawn in this prophecy is a picture of calm, concentrated restraint. You ever see a lion that is waiting, looking, eyes out for the prey? They look like they're resting, but the muscles are taut. Calm, restraint. Balaam confirmed this part of the, the prophecy that is, he couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lioness. Balaam said in Numbers 24, 9, he couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you, old Balaam said over Israel and camped below. This is a picture here of the quiet self-discipline of Jesus. Jesus in heaven, restrained, ready to return, but restrained, waiting until what's accomplished, that which must be accomplished is done. He's restrained. This, listen, this waiting of Jesus should not be taken for passivity or laziness. Not that Jesus just doesn't care or that he's got other things going on. When people say, where is God in all this? He's ready. Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So currently he couches, peaceful in restraint, yet ready to spring, ready to pounce at a word from the Father. And so this phrase then continues, who dares rouse him up? I hear a lot of Christians, okay, I'm one of them, say, oh, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly, come now. Who dares? <laughs> Rouse him up. Do we know what we're asking? Now, in Christ, we do. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, when we pray, come and get us, come receive us to yourself, we know what we're saying. We want to be caught up. We want to be, we long to be with him but understand who it is that we're talking about, the grandeur and the glory and the awesomeness for the moment we're in the presence of Jesus, we will be on our faces before him. Who dares rouse him up? Psalm two, verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Anybody ever think of Jesus 
as an angry lion? You see, there are two things going on here. There's the Jesus who cannot wait to bring his people home, those who trusted him, those who have faith in him. He longs to have us with him, but there's the Jesus who is angry at the rebellion and the defiance and the ignorance that so plagues the world that we live in. And I'll tell you, the world of mankind has no idea what it will mean for the Lion of Judah to return. You think the world is on edge right now? Joel 3.16 tells us the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Revelation 5, verse 5, tells us the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. That's marvelous. The overcoming has already taken place. That the conquering is assured. He's coming to rule. Hey, Gorenberg, hey, millennialists, there are things worth wanting that you can and will absolutely acquire, things spoken by Jesus. The lion who is coming. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. One of the most significant things ever spoken from Jesus to Jacob, to you and to me. Scepter. The scepter shall not depart. We saw this this last summer in our summer psalms. Our Savior Psalms, we looked at these. The word scepter is Shabbat. It's translated rod. It is the same word used in Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. But again, note the balance for those who have faith in Jesus. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod, your Shabbat and your staff, they comfort me. The same rod that will shatter is the rod that brings comfort to anyone who will trust in Jesus. Revelation 12, five says she gave birth to a son, a male who is to rule all the nations with a rod, a shabet, a scepter of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So again, is it a rod that comforts or shatters? It depends on where you stand with him. It depends on whether you trust him or reject him. In the shorter term, verse 10 means Judah would hold on to the ruling authority, to its ruling sovereignty, right on up until the time when this this Shiloh comes. And this is it. This is where Jacob opens what I called earlier the messianic window. Note this, because while he doesn't give precise dates at this point, He does open the window to allow us to peer into it. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff, the right to rule from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Note this, Josephus, Jewish historian, he he wrote of a day and we're not completely sure. Some say it was in 7 AD, others say it was in 12 AD. It may be somewhere in there. But it was a day when the Roman procurator Caponius 
he stripped the legal powers of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, including the right to impose capital punishment. On that day, the scepter departed from Judah. Jewish sovereignty was lost when this Roman procurator decreed such a thing. On that day, the Babylonian Talmud tells us Jewish rulers were weeping in sackcloth and ashes, wailing, walking the ramparts of Jerusalem in tears, saying, woe unto us, for the scepter is departed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. Why would they say that? Because they took this prophecy literally. They were shocked that God had seemingly not kept his word. We have lost sovereignty, but the promise was Messiah would come before we lost sovereignty. But some think, and the timing fits, that perhaps that exact same day, a 12-year-old Jesus sat in the Jerusalem temple, astounding the priests. Luke chapter two, verses 41 through 52. And I wonder If that's the case, if Jesus wasn't discussing with the priest that day, Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The promise Shiloh would come before sovereignty was lost, and indeed he did. Shiloh had come right on time. The messianic window, it had to be opened. Get this, in all of history, That window had to open. That is, Messiah had to be in the world before the loss of Jewish sovereignty. And add to it a prophecy that would come much later. Before the loss, or or according to Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, the window had to close. That is, Messiah had to depart from the world before Jewish Jerusalem fell. There's the window. Sometime before the loss of Jewish sovereignty, Messiah had to enter the world. Sometime before Jerusalem fell, Messiah had to depart the world. Sometime before Jerusalem fell, and we're talking about the second time because Daniel prophesied it after Jerusalem had already fallen once before the next falling of Jerusalem. So you put Jacob's prophecy and Daniel's together, Messiah has to come before Jewish sovereignty was lost, 7 to 12 AD. He had to be in the world. He had to depart from the world before Jerusalem fell, 70 AD. That is a very narrow window of time in all history for the biblical Messiah to come into the world, and he did, in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable prophecy And in fact, Daniel makes it even more specific, putting the timing of Messiah's death in the month of Nisan, AD 32, right in the middle of that messianic window. Shiloh came, and Shiloh departed exactly as the prophetic word spoke. Well, that's no surprise. Jesus knew when he was coming and leaving, and so he's the one who told him to say it. By the way, Shiloh probably isn't even a name. The city of Shiloh, there there is a Shiloh today in Israel. In fact, originally Shiloh or, or Shiloh was the location that the Ark of the Covenant rested in the tabernacle for the first 150 years when the people came into the land. So they're at Shiloh. We've been to Shiloh, a few of us, and Shiloh's a place. 
But it may only have been named as a nod to this verse because in the verse, we don't believe it's a name. Rather, it's a description that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until him whose right it is comes. That's what Shiloh means. Him whose right it is. Psalm 110 verse two again says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter of the Lord belongs to only one. Only one has the right to rule with this scepter, and that is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. By the way, this is probably what was on Ezekiel's mind as the Spirit of Christ inspired him to speak to the very last king of Judah, before it fell to Babylon. That is, Ezekiel spoke this prophecy toward Zedekiah. Ezekiel 21, verse 27. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This throne also will be no more until him or until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. It's gonna be a ruin until the one comes whose right it is. And that one, again, is Jesus. You ever feel like your life is in ruins? Like everything's just a mess? Your self-rule is failing? Whatever you've tried, whatever you've done, you just look at yourself in the mirror and say, it's all for naught, it's a big waste, I'm a waste, I'm a ruin? Hey, Jesus alone has the right to rule you and to save you. He's the one who has the right. It's not your right. Not my right to save myself. I don't have that power. If you feel your life is a ruin, you turn to Jesus. He's the one with the right and the authority and the power to set things right. Note how the end of the verse uh, speaks. It says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I just point out to you, peoples is plural. It's not to him shall be the obedience of the people, Israel, but the peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. The entire world shall have obedience to the one whose right it is to rule. Keep going, verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine and he washes his garments in wine. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who ties his foal to a vine? If you've ever seen a grapevine, It's not a substantial thing. This is not what you tie a young donkey to. A a colt would rip the vine right up out of the ground. But he ties his foal to the vine. Why would he do that? He does it because the vine is strong. The vine. He ties his coal to the vine. John 15, verse one, I am the true vine, Jesus says. And my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, John 15, five. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He ties the colt to the vine. And that happened as he entered Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. The colt was tied to the vine, the vine being Jesus. As for the foal, this is the first prophecy indicating how the Lion of Judah would reveal and declare himself. So he already speaks here, 1,700 years before Jesus came into the world, Jacob is the first to note that he's gonna have something to do with a donkey's colt, tied to the vine. 
The second prophet to underscore this and bring a second witness to this is Zechariah, chapter nine, verse nine. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Two pro prophetic words of a messianic moment that are detailed in all four gospels but we have two prophecies here supporting one another and the Lord said, let it be done by two witnesses. We have two witnesses of the donkey's foal being tied to Jesus as he comes in declaring he is Messiah when he came into Jerusalem on that marvelous day. Jacob reaches all the way now to Messiah's second coming. We've got the first coming, he comes as a cub. He would grow as a cub now he's couching, he's lying down, he's, he's waiting. The scepter shall not depart. He came, to him shall be the obedience that speaks of the future. The, tying the fold to the vine, the colt, we're speaking of now, he's come into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. But then Jacob continues that he washes his garments in wine. I'll say this, on the one hand, that speaks of great abundance and luxury. Who washes in wine? You know, most of us use water but the indication is abundance here. And yet, there's more to it, as you know, and his robes in the blood of grapes. So on the surface, verse 11, really speaks of strength and royalty and luxurious abundance. It even says in verse 12, his eyes are dull from wine, some say because he can have all he wants, and his teeth are white from milk, and so it's a picture here being drawn of, of luxurious abundance, strength, royalty. We're talking about grapevines and wine and milk. And these commodities of, of those who would be rich and well off, especially in the time of, of Jacob. But the meaning, the meaning gets deeper as we recall the first messianic miracle of Jesus, which was water to wine. He washes in wine. But prophetically, you know, Bible students, it is far more intense than any of that. Listen to Isaiah 63, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For a day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. We know it in Revelation 19, verse 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and that's not his blood. He already shed his blood, but in his coming, in his return, his robe is dipped in the lifeblood of the rebellious, of those who would stand opposed to and against him. And Revelation 19, 13 says, and his name is called the Word of God. And so back in Jacob's prophecy, he washes his garments in wine and his robe, robes in the blood of grapes speaks of his second coming and speaks of the blood on his robes. 
and the might and the conquering power of King Messiah as he returns to this world to wage war. It's a bloody spectacle and it is stunning. And I will repeat what I have said many times before. Blood is required to satisfy the wrath of God. It will either be the blood of Christ poured out by every drop on the cross or it will be your blood. Here's the real tragedy. Your blood is not sufficient to pay for your sins. His blood is. That's why salvation depends on Jesus and Jesus alone because only the blood of Christ is pure to the salvation of souls. Only the blood of Jesus can wash us clean. Now you might say, okay, I get all that, but verse 12 is a little weird. His eyes are dull from wine. Is Jesus drunk? What's that a picture of? His teeth are white from milk? What is this saying to us? Literally, and please note this, the Hebrew phrase is literally his eyes are darker than wine. Not dull from wine. It's not like Jesus is like, (laughs) it's darker than wine. Not dull, but in other words, intense. Intense. This is the lion about to be roused. This is the one with the fiery eyes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk, not well-brushed, but pure and spotless as he speaks forth the word of God. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. From his coming to earth as a lion's cub all the way to his glorious return, that is what old Jacob was prophesying by the Spirit of Christ. It's truly awesome. But look back at verse one. Jacob again summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the end of days. Some are asking, where is God? Some right now, they're not even asking that. They're ignorant to what is going on. But people are not only asking where is God or not asking where is God, they are asking what I'm hearing, what you're probably hearing is where are we? When will we get back to normal? What will we pass along once we get back to normal? And I'm hearing this in the church a lot. What will we pass along to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation after that? And I am telling you this morning, I don't believe we have that long. It's in God's hands. But Jacob's end of days prophecy for his children, the children of Israel, and for the entire world, these end of days are coming on fast. Jesus, in Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And that is with increased rapidity. And speeding up, folks. And of course, John says at the end of Revelation, amen, come, Lord Jesus. You know what's remarkable to me about the prophecy of Judah as he stands there shuffling his feet waiting for his father's words to come down on his head like they had on Reuben and Shimon and Levi what amazes me is the grace amazing grace Judah the man started out a sinful mess but he ended up father of the lineage of the lion Jesus Messiah that's grace 
That's grace. The very fact that we're sitting here today talking about these end times prophecies is proof of grace. It hadn't happened yet. Proof of grace. Jesus is on the verge, but held back calmly in restraint. Why? Because of grace. Because he still wants to see you saved, me saved. Hearts changed. But time is running out. Skip down to the very last verse of chapter 49. Verse 33 says, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And I wonder if that's not a prophetic picture that goes right along with the prophecy, meaning this, when the prophecy's done, the age is done. Jacob finished prophesying and he was done. When this prophecy comes to its complete fulfillment, the age is done. My question to you this morning, it's a serious question. When that happens, where will you be gathered? Jacob finished prophesying and was gathered to his people. When the prophecy is final, where will you be gathered? Heads up. The lion's about to be roused. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And we end on a somber and sober note, recognizing, Lord Jesus, that you are about to be roused. Lord, we are among those who dare to rouse you simply because of your grace. And my prayer is this day, your grace would continue to be extended. Your restraint in the heavens would hold on just a little longer so that we can make choices to believe and to trust and to follow that we might be gathered to you, Lord. Father, implant your word in our hearts. For followers, use it to increase faith and strengthen our resolve as witnesses in this world. And for those lost and hurting, may we understand the lion has come to save, but will return again to pronounce final judgment. Father, seed these words to our hearts. Help us to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 